Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. G'day, Kate Campbell. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is wonderful to be back, Owen, for our very first Q&A for 2022. I was going to say, as I was preparing for today's episode, when was the last time we did a Q&A? We're supposed to be doing these every month and we haven't done them for ages. When was the last time? Um, our producer, Monique, and I looked this morning and it was around mid-November, so it has been a while. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're well behind. So fortunately, there's the Facebook group. If you are interested, the Rask Australia Facebook group, um, there are about 3,000 people in there now, I think right? about 4,000, Owen. 4,000, so grown Jeez. since you've been gone with COVID. Groups. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's... So there are some fantastic answers to questions in there. It's I I know every child thinks their baby is beautiful, but it is probably the best tempered, um, most respectful finance community I've come across. Not so many, what do you think of this stock? Or here's why I think this stock is going up. No one disagree with me. It's actually a really productive kind of like people that are in touch with the emotional side of money as well. So it's, it's great to see. So if you have any questions, you can send them through there and we'll refer to some uh, in today's episode, uh, we might also add that actually I do have, or I just I'm coming out of COVID now, so if my voice does give way, I apologise. Um, maybe I'll lean on you for Kate, uh, you, Kate, for much of this episode. We've got um we've got some questions on timing and when to buy ETFs and shares. We've got questions around having a partner who may not be on board with money. Uh, we've got a question around licks and or LICs and buybacks and a heap of kind of like interesting stuff. There's a bit of meat on these questions. Which yeah, is really good. I, I had fun going through the, the podcast inbox because it has been a while and there was a lot of questions, but just trying to find a few different ones that we haven't spoke about recently or at all before. Mm. Um, and that's like especially the first one about um, working out your ideal investment frequency. That really sent me down a whole rabbit hole. So that'll be a fun one to unpack. Yeah, for sure. Um, just before we get into it, some disclaimers. You reminded me to do two today. Um, any of the answers to the questions today are strictly limited to general financial advice. What that means is even if we read out a question, we might have anonymized it, we might have changed it. Um, and the reason that we do that is because it cannot be uh, specific to any one individual. It also means that if you are listening to this and you, you know, we answer a question about super, your situation, your goals, or your needs and objectives could be totally different to the person that asks the question if you know the question is indeed exactly the same as it was asked anyway. So what that means is you should always consider how the information relates to your situation before you act on it. So that means getting the advice of a licensed and trusted professional, someone that you can look up in the ASIC financial um, registers portal. Um, because at the end of the day, we're not giving personal financial advice. We're giving general financial advice and anything that we've mentioned like tax or performance, it's important that those um, that you understand the risks of those things as well. We're not tax advisors. We're not giving you uh, specific tax advice and nor are we guaranteeing the performance of any investment. So um, I will probably re repeat that throughout the show. We'll probably bring up that it is general advice because some of these questions are fantastic, but they, um, they've given... The, the people who have written into us or sent questions to us via social media have given us a lot of info. So we're just going to be extra clear about that. Uh, Kate, how can someone ask a question? Like what's the best way to do it? 
Yeah, so the best way at the moment is actually just via the Facebook community because then you can get some immediate ideas and responses from other people. And we actually look in the Facebook community every week. And if there are some questions that aren't quite answered or that are really popular and we see people, everyone saying, hey, Rask team would love you to answer this, I'll be taking questions from there. Otherwise, if you want to ask it semi-anonymously, email us at podcast at rask, rask.com.au. Yep. Cool. Okay. Podcast at rafts.com.au. Get on it. If you haven't already sent us a question, uh, we do get a lot, uh, but we'll do our best to answer them. Yeah. So Kate, maybe uh, if you read the questions there, just because my voice might give way, um, yes. it might also be easier, especially this first one from Matt. Yes. Uh, we don't want you sounding hoarse all week. That would be annoying. Mm. Um, so this is a question from Matt via email about the ideal investing frequency. And I think this question is coming up more and more because people are investing in ETFs, exchange traded funds, and they're trying to work out how often should I actually be investing? And so the question is that, is there any benefits um, trying to work out your investing frequency? Should I be buying shares and ETFs fortnightly or monthly? Like how often and how do you work that out? Yeah. I mean, we often talk about just invest. I'd say that for most people, that's the best advice is just invest. Mm. Um, but the problem is every time you invest a certain amount of money, you lose a bit through brokerage. Yeah. So some of the brokers now have driven down the prices to like zero or near zero. Um, basically, you're not going to be a competitive brokerage firm in Australia unless you're below $10 for, you know, for a small trade. Um, and even then, um, there are some you know, that will do it for free. But as we've spoken about in our brokers series, there, there are normally strings attached if the brokerage is free. So what does this mean in practice? It just means that every time you make an investment, so let's say you invest 500 bucks or a thousand bucks, you actually end up losing a tiny amount from the brokerage. If it's, you know, the brokerage is 10 bucks and you've got a thousand to invest, you lose, you know, you're left with $990 that actually gets invested. Now, 10 bucks on $1,000 isn't that much. It might not seem like it, but if you're doing that every month or every week or every fortnight for 40 years, all of a sudden it's a lot of money. So this calculator, Kate, I'll let you do the intro to it. I was just reading through some of the assumptions. It's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, so I was... Um... I was chatting to a few people who think about this a little bit more than me, and they said there's a fantastic calculator which really works for anybody called an investment frequency calculator. And the website is investcalc.github.io, but I'll put it in the show notes. And what you do is you add in your income frequency, the amount you're getting to invest, uh, how much interest you get on the savings, which in Australia right now is virtually zero, uh, your expected investment returns and your brokerage per investment you make. And it puts together and using some code, I'm sure, on the back end, an optimal investment schedule telling you how often, um, based off your brokerage amount, um, makes sense for you to be investing. And so it does help, especially if you're investing in ETFs and you've already set up, you've decided, hey, these are my three ETFs I'm going to invest in. I just want to know how often I should be doing it. Should I be waiting until I have a thousand or $2,000 in my bank account? You can use a calculator like this. And I've, then after I went down that rabbit hole, there's quite a few calculators that work on very similar assumptions around the web uh, to work out how often you should be investing into your ETFs. That makes sense with when you're looking at the cost of your brokerage? Yeah, um, I think the, the, this uh, example is going to hit home for people here. So in the past, just for a bit of um, clarity, in the past, 
I would always say invest at least a thousand dollars at a time. That's because brokerage, when I was saying that, was ten to twenty bucks. Um, I still like if you're investing less than that and you're paying ten dollars brokerage, start that up. Like ten dollars on a five hundred dollar investment in shares is two percent. So that's quite a high amount. Like we always talk about how investment fees can be high if they're like 2%, 1% per year, we're saying this just for one investment. Um, so it's important. It's important to consider, but maybe an example here will help, Kate. All right, Kate. So here we can see uh, Perla's website and there is an investment uh, frequency calculator. So here we can see that if we get paid monthly, uh, each pay we save about a thousand bucks. Um, the bank account that where we put our money or like in the brokerage account, if it pays interest, wherever we put that savings amount until we've got enough to invest is 0.1%, which is like not many brokerage accounts or bank mm-hmm. accounts off that much in interest. Um, and let's say the investments earn 8% per year and it costs $10 to make, um, to make an investment. According to the calculator, with $1,000 added every month, we should be investing every two months. Yeah. So that would mean that we're investing $2,000 at the time. Now, so what's the difference between, you know, the best strategy as in every two months, investing every two months with $2,000 rather than $1,000? So if you leave money in your savings account, the calculator suggests that you might have $120,000 after 10 years. But if you invest it at the optimal frequency, you'll have $178,000 after 10 years. Um and if you invested at half the optimal frequency, you have a very similar amount too. Um, but obviously, the optimal frequency is every two months, which is about $2,000. Now, if you're saving $2,000 a month, well, then what's the optimal frequency every month? So this is based on, obviously, a $10 brokerage. So the basic, I guess, idea here is that um, it's like for most people, if you can invest $2,000, do it. Um, if it's not $2,000 that you can invest, um, maybe you you can do it with a thousand dollars, but let's say, for example, if your broker was charging you three dollars, um, and you only had a thousand dollars to invest every month, then all of a sudden it's still saying invest a thousand dollars every month. So we'll put a link in the the show notes to this. But the basics is it, it's like a relationship between how much you pay in brokerage uh, and how much money you have to invest. If you if your if your broker is charging you ten bucks, maybe it's worth investing two thousand dollar parcels. But if your broker is charging you three bucks, maybe you can invest $1,000 parcels. Um, it's just a very simple relationship. There are flaws to this, we should add. It's not just like, you know, yeah. personally, I think, you know, personally, I think this is very complex. Like, it's a very complicated thing to think about. After a while, you'll begin to just be like, okay, just, you know, you'll have it on autopilot and you'll just go for mm. it. Yeah. And I think this one is a little bit more useful if you are investing in a couple of different ETFs. You've decided your three ETF portfolio because, it doesn't make sense if you only have $1,000 each month to um, sometimes buy 330 in each of these three ETFs. And so it might make more sense each month to uh, month one, you buy um, $1,000 of ETF number one, month two, $1,000 of ETF number two, and so on. And then you just keep um, rotating through that. So you keep topping up into each of your uh, ETFs mm. in your portfolio, or you might not exactly have a third in each one. So just depending on what that allocation is. Um, and then some people choose to top up the ETF in, that has the lowest amount in it. So 
Um, you, it really comes back to working out your allocation. I think we've talked in the past about putting that investment plan together. So if you know what you want in each ETF, it might be 60, 20, 20, um, then just topping up the ETF that's furthest away from that allocation. But again, I think this is a little bit more technical that like people don't start off at this point, but it is if you're going down the track and you're trying to figure out a long-term strategy to, add, to building this ETF portfolio, it sometimes can help having a look at these numbers. Yeah, for sure. You may as well use the calculator and put your situation in and see what works for you. Um, what I would say is if, you're, if you've got a thousand bucks and you're worried, should I make my first investment or should I wait till 2000? Just invest. Yeah. That would be my, like for absolute beginners, just invest, get started, mm. put the money to work, see how your emotions go. You might get it wrong. You might get it right. But just remember that you've got to start. The hardest bit is probably just that first investment that you've got to make. Um, obviously, and another thing, I think this is something you and I have grown on, Kate, and we've got a question in a minute about having invested for quite a while. But we often talk a lot about fees and keeping fees super low. Obviously, that's really important. However, once you get to a certain level, it's actually okay. And I think there's nothing wrong with charging fees, to be honest. Like I think... Um, in the beginning, I was very fee conscious because I had a smaller balance. But once your your balance is 10,000, 20,000, 50, 100,000, the fee that you pay, it's you, you, you kind of, I don't know. I don't know. Is it my talking out of the turn here? Like, have you felt this? Like, I'm not really that worried about it anymore. Yeah, I think it's interesting as you do in like at the start, that first thousand dollars is so critical to you. And the decision you make with that thousand dollars feels enormous. But I think as you, invest and get comfortable and build start building your portfolio over a number of years um the thousand dollar decisions start to feel a little bit smaller when you're dealing with the ten thousand or a hundred thousand dollar decisions so i think it that's like i do see some of our community sometimes get stuck on deciding between the five dollar brokerage versus the ten dollar brokerage and they'll spend months agonizing and not actually taking that first step which i think is mm. the most important thing to take that first step and to become an investor and you can change brokerage accounts down the track. It's not a be or an end or most of these things you can change. It's more, you've just got to get started. Um, and yeah, I think, agreed. like, I do think fees, like fees, if you're actually getting the service you want are okay, but um, they do compound over a long period of time. But when you're talking about brokerage, when it's just a once off, when you make that purchase, it's not an ongoing fee necessarily. Mm, agreed. So Sarah's asked our next question has come through the Facebook community. Um, summarized as what if I've invested for the required amount of time? Question mark. Maybe you can flesh this question out a bit, Kate. Yeah. So we talk about investing for a longer period of time, five to 10 plus years. So what if Sarah was just asking, well, what if you have invested already for that five, 10 plus years time? You've invested for a long period of time and you're ready to do something with it. So you invested for a long-term goal, such as buying a property in 10 years or maybe even retiring. So how do you approach actually getting to the point where you are ready to use the money that you've been investing for such a long time for, um, especially if the market's a little bit volatile and you're a bit scared? Yeah, so first things first, um, <clears throat> remember to keep an eye on when your goal is coming up or how far away your goal is. Like goal tracking is not necessarily just about like, I'm going to get to a million dollars and then everything will be fine. Like when you approach a million dollars, you know, this is an example, you'll also have goals around that time. 
Or if you say, I'm going to buy, I'm going to get married and I want to in seven years and I want to start investing now for that. Well, you don't get to, you know, year 6.99 and then decide, okay, time to take all the money out. What you should be trying to do is effectively plan for the withdrawal as well. Mm. So just like you effectively plan to put money in, how do you take money out? And so as you get closer to your goal, you should be looking at thinking, you should be looking at thinking, okay, let's start to withdraw some money. What is the most effective thing for me, not just now, but in the long term? And so, for example, one of the things in the short term might be, well, maybe I should take some of my lesser performing positions because that will incur less tax for me. Um, and then um, I won't have as big a tax bill when June 30 rolls around. Or maybe you think I've held this investment for a long time, therefore I get the capital gains tax discount. Um, whereas this other investment that I have, I've only held it for six months or something like that. And the, the, the final piece of this is we always, always, always talk about that money that's invested in the market probably shouldn't be in the market if it's needed in the next three years. So let's say, for example, you had a goal to save $75,000 for your house deposit and you knew that it was still five years away. Well, once you get to year three, you might have $50,000 put aside. But then any extra money that you put into the market from that point on, you would have to question if you're going to need that sooner rather than later. So again, it's a bit of forethought here. You should be starting to put that money into cash rather than putting that money to work in the stock market. And it's because the goalposts do shift. They come towards you, they move away depending on your goal. Yeah. And I think we get into a lot of things. We get into investments, we get into jobs, we get into businesses, and we don't have any concept of what an exit plan looks like for us. And I mean, mm. I haven't really done that before. I haven't, um, I, my goals are just pretty much right now, financial goals and retirement financial goals. So uh, I think that if I did have maybe a 10 year investing time horizon, if I had a specific goal for that, um, even when you're getting started or maybe halfway along the journey, starting to work out, well, what does my exit plan look like? When do I need this money? Uh, am I going to slowly take the money out of the market over a three-year period or something like that? Um, sort of mm. like we talk about dollar cost averaging in, um, consider maybe dollar cost averaging out of the market. Um, and I think mm. it is a hard discussion. And I think you might have to sell something when you don't necessarily want to sell it if that is really important that you buy the house this year. Um, and I think it's, yeah, you have to weigh up those goals against each other. What's more mm. important for you right now? Um, and yeah, I think we should have more of a discussion about what is our investment exit plan? We talked about reasons why we might sell shares um, recently on the podcast, but when do you sort of exit your portfolio because you've hit the target you want? Most people, you, you've talked about this before, at least we've talked about it the, the two of us, is the psychology of fire investors is actually really interesting around this time because for so long, fire investors, um, there's a question on that in just a minute, uh, for so long, fire investors are like, I've got to save, I've got to invest, I've got to save, I've got to invest. And then they get to their goal and they're like, oh, sh actually, I have to sell stuff? That doesn't feel right. It mm -hmm. doesn't, like I can actually spend money? Like it's it's all of a sudden, like that's just a really poor generalization of five movement, of course, but yeah. But even like the self-managed super yeah. funds like in Australia, there's a real mindset um, that you don't want to sell the capital. You just want to live off the dividends. Like selling capital yeah. is the worst thing you can do, but actually the superannuation system is designed that you sell a bit of the capital each year. Um, and you don't just keep this huge amount of money forever. You're supposed to actually use it. 
yeah, that's it. And so, you know, we've, you talked about there, you should have your cash set aside. Um, so that's the emergency cash that shouldn't be used for like house deposits or that necessarily. Um, and I'm sure we can say that and people still use it anyway. But um, the other thing is obviously to plan in advance. So you've got, you start building that cash position in advance because it is the true that when you sell anything, you may incur capital gains tax. Now, there are some exemptions, of course, like your primary residence, but if you're selling an investment in shares or ETFs, you're going to pay tax. So you want to avoid paying as much tax as you can. You know, you want to keep that as low as you can. So starting to build that cash buffer before you hit your goal, like there's like a hard mm-hmm. end on that. Um, you can start, like you mentioned it, Kate, right now when markets are volatile, stock prices are falling or at least volatile up and down. Um, and so you might be a bit more conservative and you might say, well, hey, my portfolio is out of balance anyway. I've got, you know, I, I've only got 60% in shares and the other stuff's in bonds and, you know, all that other stuff that we've talked about, defensive assets, gold, whatever. And you might say, okay, I need to get back in balance. Instead of rebalancing the portfolio, I might just sell some of my bond or my gold exposure and then take that off the table first. So that way it puts the portfolio back in balance while you're also withdrawing some money for your long-term goals. And then once the stock market comes back or starts to perform well again, then you can start to take some of that capital back off the table. It's a really kind of like gray area answer because it depends how far your goal is away, Mm. what your saving potential is between now and then. And also your tax position. Remember that you know the tax man comes no matter what you say. So just yeah. make sure that you can manage that. Making sure you put money aside for any capital gains tax before you just jump into the next investment, I think is really important. That's it. So the next question, yeah. Kate, comes from Ben. It's also yes. in our Facebook community. Yes. Super versus fire slash late start investor. Yes. So Ben is for about to turn 40. I won't round it up for him. Um, a little late to the investing game, but This is great, Ben, because we advocate starting at any age. Um, He's just wondering, at his age, is it better to just pump any extra income into his super and wait it out until he retires? Or are there some shorter-term investing options that can uh, help him sort of on the way until then? Um, He really wants to increase his financial freedom so he can travel and spend time with his daughter as she grows up. Um, So just wondering if there's any investment options in the next 20 years or should he just focus on superannuation? Yeah, obviously, I'm just going to reinforce the general advice um, warning here. Uh, This is not just for Ben, but for anyone. If we talk about super in particular, um, he's given us one of his goals, which is to support his daughter as she grows up. Um, This borders borders, personal financial advice. So we've just made this a little bit anonymized, uh, this question. Um, but it's still limited to general financial advice. And the reason why I want to bring that warning up here is because, as you know, Kate, once your money goes into super, it typically stays there for a long time. And typically the reason that you'd get it out is retirement or death, which in which case it doesn't go to you, it goes to someone else. Mm. Um, and so I bring this up because, okay, so let's talk about his two options. Uh, one is super. Uh, if he puts money into super, he could out of his own pocket. So he gets paid and then he puts money in. He could probably claim a tax deduction for that. Um, and then inside of super, superannuation, the returns inside super are taxed at a lower rate than most people's income outside of super, at least if you're working. Now, if he puts his money into super, the big drawback is that he can't get it out for a long time. And you'll get to that in just a sec. But the other side of it is he keeps his money outside of super, meaning that he invests in a brokerage account, a managed fund, um, 
you know, whatever. Uh, and in that case, he's going to be taxed at his marginal tax rate on capital gains, as well as any dividend income that he receives. So the drawback here is that he pays more in tax. Uh, he may also pay a little bit more in fees. Um, so these are the important considerations. Now, he mentioned his goals here. So I'll bring that up. He mentioned his goal was to provide for his family. Um, and he mentioned that he's 40. So we know a few things about this person. I would just say, just generally speaking, Ben, that it doesn't matter how old you are. You should just, just start. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, I would say at first, maybe don't overthink it. Maybe don't overthink super, outside super. Yes, that's an important consideration. You want to do it right. But if you haven't invested before, maybe just try it out and see if you like investing. Start with a small amount of money. See if you like it. If you don't have the temperament for it, like if you find yourself always worried about things or whatever, maybe super is a good option or maybe seeing a financial advisor is a better option, even if it costs you money. Um, leading up into So leading up into retirement, it's one of the times in your life where I think everyone should get financial advice. Hmm. Um, I know that sounds kind of backward. Why would you get it at the end of your life when there's less planning involved? Well, it's because you have nest eggs bigger and you can afford it. Unfortunately, financial advice in Australia is so expensive um, for younger people. Yeah, and I think heading heading up towards retirement when you do potentially only have a 20- or 30-year time frame, um, it is a good idea to talk to a financial advisor because they'd be able to um, sim- simulate, what am I, that's the word I'm looking for, um, yep. what that could look like investing inside and outside of super, how long you might want to work for. You might not want to work until you're 60. You might want to retire at 50. So what assets would you need inside and outside of super? And I, I don't think it has to be all or nothing. Um, I think we can get really stuck with that choice that I just have to invest in super or just invest outside of it. And you might Agreed. be able to find a really happy medium that takes you to your 60 and then you've got super for after that. And so talking to a financial advisor, um, especially with this kind of question, would be a really helpful thing to do to just map out what it might look like because you might want that flexibility to travel um, and have that money outside of super for the next two decades. But um, it's also a good time to start focusing more on superannuation and retirement. And um, I mean, 20 years is still a great long-term investing oh, yeah. time horizon. So you've got a lot of opportunity to do stuff both inside and outside of super. Um, yeah, I might add two things here. One is you touched on it there, Kate. He's 40. And I think you did a calculation to work at his preservation age. That's when he could start to access some of his super at 60. Um that's still a long time. Yeah. That's still, you know, a financial advisor would sit down and do a risk profile and all that, but that's still a very long time. Most investors can't invest for a year, let alone 20 years without pulling their investments out. Mm. So if you can find a way to do that, it's great. Yeah. Just you, gonna, going, I was just going to say that age, if you go onto the Money Smart website and I'll link it in the show notes, it's just the, the page, when can you get your super and your preservation age, if you were born after the 1st of July, 1964, your age, you can access your super or your preservation age is 60. So that's good to keep in mind. Who knows if it will change in the future, but that's what it is at the moment. There are some, some rules around that too. Just uh, just know that the preservation age is when you may be able to access super. Um, the other thing that I was going to mention, Kate, is a really quick, rough, like back of the envelope, not even type of thumb sucking exercise that anyone can do. Is if you go to like the Money Smart Compound Interest Calculator, now you can run a scenario, right? Let's say you put a thousand dollars 
away for your investing, just like we spoke about before. Um, and you can run a scenario and you can say, what's the difference between putting it inside super or out of super? You can say, okay, let's assume that I'm going to return, like earn a 7% return, right? Well, if your tax rate is, you know, 30%, for example, from that 7%, eventually you're going to have to pay some amount of tax. So you might say, you might bring that down. You might say, okay, I'm going to invest outside of super. I could, I could, I don't know, just as a guess, 7% return. I'm going to push that down to a 5% return after tax and then see what happens to the money smart calculator. You'll notice that that extra 2% that you've lost has a big impact. Right? But if you invest inside super, there's going to be less tax to pay. Mm. The super fund's going to pay less tax than you, so your money's going to compound faster. So you might bring that return, instead of saying 7%, you might bring it down to 6%. And you'll see that even though it's only a small return difference, over 20 years it makes a big difference. And the reason I bring this up is I, I would think, depending on, we don't know anything about Ben really other than what is divulged in some of this question, but I would say that what might end up happening is um, he might want to have some resources available before he retires and not be entirely dependent on superannuation. So what he might decide to do is have, like you said, Kate, basically like fork his income. So half of it goes one way, half of it goes the other way. Um, and what it, what, it, what it does is like he puts some aside, you know, in a brokerage account or wherever right now invests. And on the other side, that goes into super. And that amount is for like that bottom drawer, long-term investing. Let's kind of forget about it. Let's let it compound in a low tax environment. Whereas the first one, the one that he does himself, is the one where he also tries to, you know, invest in a similar way for the long term. But he knows that he's got more flexibility with that. Yeah, and I think it comes down to that, that flexibility piece um, and just having options. You can invest in very similar diversified ETFs that, um, while it's a completely different product to superannuation, you can get that diversified, you can get a balanced portfolio outside of super. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a big advocate for flexibility and that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can invest in both. And definitely I think this is a good place to talk to a financial advisor. Absolutely it is. And if you, I mean, Ben, I'm sure the Facebook community's got you covered here, but yeah, you can talk to a financial advisor. Um, and if you do want to set up, you know, things particularly around like for education uh, for your child, there might be tax things there. Um, you know, we've talked about education bonds and insurance bonds. For some people, they're okay. For most people, they're probably not that useful, but um, there are various different types of things that might be beneficial. And that's where a great financial advisor comes in. Mm. Um, so yeah you can pay for once off piece of advice and, and see how you go remember to head to the um, um, independent financial advisors website and you'll get plenty of advice there there are plenty of non-independent great financial advisors too by the way um, okay Kate so we've got uh, another Facebook community question and then this one comes from Lindell uh, yes. Lindell asks about lick buybacks this your favourite topic yeah oh well, I get out of bed I have <laughs> we talk about it every and day I think about licks go for it um, so Lindell's invested in a few ETFs and leaks um, as part of his buy and hold strategy to have a dividend income stream. And one of his leaks has actually announced a buyback this year. Um, but Lindell doesn't really know what that means or why it happens. So he's just written in to ask that question, which is probably good because I don't think most people um, would have experienced a lick buyback before. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So this is an interesting thing 
um, we were trying to figure out which leak it was. We're not 100% sure, so we don't know the details. But so what is a leak? Let's just, just real quick. We've talked about it before. It's a listed investment company. Think of it um, like a company that invests for you. Um, uh, what's it? We've explained this before. I'm trying to give the concise version. So the difference between a lick and an ETF is inside an ETF, you get all your shares, right? And you add up all the value of all those shares of all the investors, and that's called the NTA. And typically, the NTA is very close to the ETF's price, the share price. Like you log into your Perla or your stake or your self-wealth account and you see you know, ETF at $10.26. Typically, $10.26 is close to the value of the investments inside that ETF. Now, with a lick, the difference is the value of the things inside can change compared to the value of the share price. So this is what we call um, a discount or a premium. So a discount is when the share price of the lick is below what's in the value of what's inside it. And um, the premium is obviously the opposite. Now, so what happens is I give, say you're a lick, Kate, I give you, I give you my money to invest for me and you give mm-hmm. me shares. With an ETF, you'd give me units, but in this case, it's a lick. So you're going to give me shares. Now, the only way that I can sell my shares is if, is if another investor buys those shares from me. And so what happens is you keep the $10 or whatever I gave you to invest for the long term. You've got that investment portfolio and you're investing it. Locked I in. Have to, it's locked in. And mm-hmm. that's what we call a closed-end fund. So meaning that the money is closed in. Whereas with an ETF, when I sell my ETF units, I'm actually redeeming it for cash. And I can redeem it straight from the ETF provider, basically. We've been through that process. But with a lick, you're actually trading the shares on the market, just like any other stock. Um, and so when going back to this premium or discount, what happens is when the, the share price is below the value of the things inside of it, um, that's called a discount. But that's actually not a good thing because what you're effectively getting is you're saying, okay, my investment in this let's use Argo as an example. Argo is one of the licks. Let's say my investment is Argo. in Argo is actually below the value of Argo. How can that be possible? How can I, how can I own a Bosch dishwasher, but then someone else can buy the same Bosch dishwasher um, you know, at a different price? It doesn't make sense. So they should come closer together. Now, what the lick providers can do is they can start buying back shares. So they can take money, and they can effectively say, Kate or Owen, I want your shares back and I'm going to buy them back at this price. Would you sell them to me? Sure. And then eventually that pushes the share price up towards the NTA. Now, so we don't know the the, ETA, the lick in question of this, but if this happens, I like to see the value, um, the value of the shares being below the value of what's inside. So a discount. If they start buying back shares and they're above NTA, it doesn't make sense. No. And I know this is a complicated and technical subject, but just know that, in my opinion, it makes sense to buy back shares when the, sh- the shares are sufficiently below the NTA. But if they're at the same level, they shouldn't be buying them back. They should be investing. I just thought it'd be interesting to touch on maybe some of the reasons why licks do end up trading at a discount. Oh, and yeah. sometimes that can happen just because 
there's a poor awareness of that product. Not many people know about it, so no one's actually wanting to buy it. Um, maybe there's some issues with management. They've just done a bad job marketing. Um, there might be some poor performance, but there's a few different reasons. I mean, I've been to one investor meeting for a, a listed investment company before, and there was actually questions in the audience of people saying, why aren't you doing a buyback? The share's been trading at a discount for, well, this lick's been trading at a discount for quite a significant period of time. And if you've invested in that lick and you want to sell it, you want to sell it at fair value, um, close to the NTA. You don't want to sell it at a discount. So uh, you want that company to actually do some marketing and um, get some more awareness of that listed investment company so more people want to buy it. That's it. That's it. I'm just actually actually just logged into the self-wealth account now and I'm just looking at Argo, um, Mm. which is one of the big licks. And I can see- Was that the one Scott Pape mentioned in his book or was that AFIC? (laughs) I think you might have mentioned both, but it was one of the, oh, maybe it was one of, someone of in our community is definitely going to pick us up on this, Kate. We're in trouble. But um, I think it's, um, I think it might be AFI. So I don't have the book in front of me. No, me neither. So we can see if you go into any brokerage account, it might have of a lick. You click on the lick, like this is like the share that you find in your brokerage account. And why don't I just share my screen with those of you who are watching just real quick. So you'll log into your, your brokerage account, whichever broker you use, they basically all provide this information. Um, and you can see here that the Argo Investments Lick trades under the ticker symbol ARG. You can see the share price is $9.55. And then if there's a ratio in here, and I'll zoom in a bit, you can see that there are two things. There's price to book right here, which says 1.16. And then there's price to tangible book, which says... Um, 1.22, or they're basically the same figure. <clears throat> so what does this actually show you? This is effectively comparing the price to the value of the assets inside the company. That's basically it. Now, if it's one or above, it means it's trading at a premium, meaning that the shares are worth more than what's inside, the book value. And if it's under that, it means that they're trading below, aka a discount. Mm. And you can always now, go the- to Argo's website to look at what the NAT, the NTA is for the lick as well. Yeah, that's it. So if we look at another one like BKI Investment Company, and if we come down uh, here, and I know this sucks for people that are listening, but it's just an example. We can see um, for BKI, it's about 1.02. So it's basically the the share price is matching, um, is matching it. So there's no discount and there's no premium. It's basically the same. Um, so it's only when that number goes below one that then you start to ask questions because you're saying, well, my shares are worth less than the actual company's assets. How does that make sense? And that's where questions are asked. Um, <clears throat> and to your point, Kate, that can happen because the company, you know, investors have lost interest. The company's not communicating properly with its investors. Um, and that tends to happen in the lower down um, licks, not the real big ones. Um I'll give you, I'll give, let's just put a bow on this. Let's put a bow on this. I want to give a real ex- example of this. I was speaking to a fund manager on the um, Australian Investors Podcast, and this was episode three, I believe, with Tony Hanson. And during the global financial crisis, he realized that he could buy shares, the shares in a listed investment company for 60 cents on the dollar. You know that classic, uh, buy it for 50 cents on the dollar. He could buy the shares for 60 cents and then he could see that the investments inside the company were worth a dollar. Now, all the company would have had to have done is wound itself up 
It could have just closed its doors and said, we're giving all your money back. And then what would have happened is Tony would have got a dollar of value back for every 60 cents that he purchased. And that's an example of how, you know, the buyback mechanism works to try and basically say, hey, we know that it's below where it should be. We'll try and return money by buying more shares back. And that's it. Mm. Uh, it took us a while, but it was kind of like <laughs> a deep dive into licks and discounts <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Kate, what's the next question? Let's get something else yeah. going on here. Okay. Our very last question is quite interesting and it's a little bit different in the fact it's about money and relationships and managing semi-separate finances. So Amy sent this via email and it was a big question. So I'm going to take a few key parts from it. But essentially, Amy um, has been getting serious about her finances during the last couple of years during COVID. Um, and she's starting a little bit later on in her journey. And she's listened to the podcast, done some of the courses. So she's ready to go. Um, she oh, wants to really create. Yeah, go Amy. The yeah. Go Amy. Create some long-term goals. But her husband has zero interest in talking about any long-term financial goals, long-term investing, anything like that, and is really focused on just day-to-day cash flow. Um, there was a bit of background about his father being a successful stockbroker in the 80s and then losing everything in the crash. So there's a bit of um there's a bit of history here. So there's some reasons why he might not want to talk about it. Um, but Amy really wants to start building wealth slowly. And she really wants to start now because she's heard us talk again and again about just getting started early and having time on your side. So um, they've got some savings, no assets, no major debt. Um, and really she just wants to get started, but he's not really on board. So she's wondering what's the best way to approach it. It's actually a tremendous question because it's huge. Yeah, um, it touches on so many different aspects. Um, obviously, the big one is psychology. It's obviously, and it, not just in this situation, it's actually in everyone's situation. Mm. Um, and the, the, I guess the personal lived experience with the trauma of investing, as Amy points out, is real. Yeah. If you see your parents and your father in this case invest so much and probably be very confident in that field as a profession and then everything just turns to crap and you lose everything that's that's a big thing so we've obviously got to talk about the psychology and the value systems how does he treat money does he just get super anxiety about any conversation unfortunately it's hard but maybe the 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 key there is to like abdicate um, his responsibility. So what I mean by that is maybe it's okay for one person in the couple to take the reins and be like, this is what we're going to do. Um, what do you think of this? I'm happy to do it for us. Um, I do see that quite a bit with some couples where one couple might be, have well, one person might be stronger in one area than the other person. So savings and investing, there might be two different skills or they might be both in one person altogether. Um, I would say there is some. There is probably the number one trick uh, around this is maybe to try and motivate him in a different way. So you know, Barefoot has the date nights, of course. Um, that's a really easy icebreaker. Like you kind of take him to the pub, and then all of a sudden, spring finances on him. No, um, it, you might be trying inclined to try and find something that he's interested in. So rather than talking about investing in shares, because that's what his dad knows is scary. Maybe you can say to him, well, what about, an, what about a property? What about a home for our family? 
let's let's talk about investing in that. Um, and if if that's not really appealing, maybe you can talk about, well, hey, why don't we turn it into a game? Why don't here's you know five hundred dollars for you, here's five hundred dollars for me. Let's start with that and see what we do. Or you know, this is the raise app. Just mm. break it in slowly. Um, maybe trying to you know make a deal with him in some way. You know, I go, you go type thing. He could um, get something in return and you could say, well, if you listen to one episode of Kate and Owen's podcast and pick one that is a little bit, you know, you know, acknowledges the risks of investing and, and all that sort of stuff. So he feels like he's also um, validated with his fears. But then we also talk about long-term principles. Maybe you can do that. Maybe you can say, you do this, I do that. Um, and, a, and a quid pro quo. Um the other thing, you know, obviously family dynamics are really important too. So understanding his goals for your family mm-hmm. um, and trying to maybe sit around the table and say, hey, I just want to teach them good money values. I was even going to say just trying to work out what kind of cash balance would make both of you feel comfortable because um, yeah. we, we say like that basic emergency fund of three to six month expenses, but if you add in costs of kids, um, if you add in someone who's really anxious about investing to begin with, it might just it might just need to throw out the numbers of what makes sense to keep in a cash balance and actually just find something that works for you. So if that might be 20 or 30,000, 30, don't worry about what that could mean if you had invested that money, but work out what that means to actually help your family start investing. Because um, I have spoken to a lot of people and that to get started, they need a much bigger cash balance to make them feel comfortable or to make their partner feel comfortable because they just like seeing that money in the bank. I know a lot of people who just like to see they've got that safety net in the bank. And for some couples, it might be a lot bigger than others. Yeah. Yeah. The psychology of money is very powerful. Um, You might find that it takes a year to get him across the line because you might be starting with, hey, let's build up this cash balance. Just having the conversation about, okay, where do we put the cash? Mm. Is it in a savings account with Macquarie? Is it ING? Is it up? Bang. Let's talk about it. And you might just have to win one thing at a time rather than trying to scale Everest. It might be one thing at a time. Um, you know, that I would say is just try to find what motivates him. If he's anything like me, he'll probably be super stubborn. Um, I know a lot of men are like this. We're always super stubborn. We've got the answers. Don't worry about me, love. I've got this. Um, when we don't got this, so, uh, so you know, those types of people can be pretty hard to break down. It can be pretty challenging. So maybe you can talk to friends about it. Maybe you can talk to family about it um, and see what they think, see if they can help this person get motivated. I know like some of my friends don't want to talk about finance as much as I'm, you know, like, hey, guys, what about these investments? Uh, they're not going to talk about it. So I know what it's like. Um, but also at the end of the day, I think the question here, Amy, is you've got to also, you may also have to pull yourself together for the kids and you may have to pull the finances together. So that may mean starting to even dollar cost average a little bit more money into super. It may mean starting a, you know with a micro investing app, starting to invest small amounts that way and occasionally saying, hey, did you see this? Hey, did you see that? Mm. Um, just doing it, just getting, you know, Getting shit done, really, is what it might take. Um, and that's okay. You know, you don't have to let it come between you. Um, I know plenty of couples where one person does take ownership of it, um, and that's okay too, and then you can work on it on the side. Mm. Yeah, and I think if there's any 
maybe one day you'll come across a particular video or a TED talk that explains it in a a really good way that you think will interest him. And even just sending that across. I mean, I'm always the person that sends uh, like little videos to friends and family in the hope that maybe one day they'll watch one and want to talk about it. But um, I don't send it with any strings attached. And I kind of just like let it sit there and maybe spark a conversation when they're ready. So I think just as long as um, like he knows you're there and you can talk about it when the time's right and maybe you just have to get started and um, start taking action um, and then slowly bring each other on board over time. What what does Scott say in the Barefoot Investors? Like um, ladies have more tools at their disposal than they realise when it comes to motivating men with money. Um, you know, it's, it's um, like the date nights work, right? So, mm. um, you know, it's. Yeah, well, know, if you haven't be- read The Barefoot Investor, I'm sure Scott Pape has some good uh, tips on having a, a money date yeah, night for you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And these are just little things, right? These are not necessarily like they're not motivated by money in the first instance. They're motivated by other things. So find out what, what else he's motivated by. You know, if you get him to sit down and read, you say, hey, you got to read this book. He's going to be like, well, maybe not. But um, if it's something that's interesting, like you might watch a movie on money, um, you might just try and build intrigue in some other way that he's not necessarily aware of straight away. So, you know, there's um, the Theranos uh, series. There is the the Big Short. There's a bunch of fun shows that talk about money in in new and exciting ways. Maybe don't play into the big, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street with him because it sounds like I'm not sure the Big Short's the right one to watch in this situation. (laughs) Yeah, but my point is just, you know, Mm. just have the conversation because a lot of people just don't have the conversation. Uh, We know Tash, uh, Natasha Eichmann from uh, Tash Invest always talks about this. She always talks about how money is not spoken about and therefore that's the real problem. Um, so the more speaking about it, you can do the better. But, Amy, you're definitely not alone. Like if anyone is in the Facebook group is in a similar situation, um, everyone is similar in this regard but also different. And so the strategies that people have will be varied, but we would love to know more about what you've done to motivate your partner We've all experienced this. I've experienced this, not necessarily in my relationship, but with friends and family. Mm. I see this all the time. It's the hardest part. So tell us, what have you done? How have you overcome that? Give us some strategies. Maybe we can save the um, favourite finance movies for another podcast, Kate. There's a lot of new ones recently, so I think we'll have plenty of material to add. Uh, Scams, financial scams are the flavour of the year. Don't show him them either. Do not show him them either. Yes. Uh, Let's just focus on the good stuff. Like give him like a, I don't know, a Warren Buffett documentary or Jack Bogle documentary. Yeah, the positive aspects of money where it has really changed someone's life or helped them reach financial goals that they never thought possible before. I think um, the more and more we speak about it and hear about people that have um, turn their financial life around. I think those stories are really empowering to help other people get started. And I think that's why we like sharing some of those listener stories last year. And hopefully we'll be sharing some more this year, um, just because you can see what money can do for you and you can see the positive impacts. Sure, there have been some really horrible negative impacts, but there can be some amazing stories coming out of it. So focus on those and um, yeah, maybe just have exposure to those different sort of sources. Yeah. Yep. There's some, yeah, we rambled and raved in this Q&A session. We have, session, we have. Okay? But, um, <laughs> I think we need some... to uh, practice for our next one. The first one back yeah, in 2022 been, needs a bit, a bit of practice. Rusty. But there are some yes. great questions. So just in terms of Amy's long question here about managing finances semi-separately, you can do it separately, you can do it semi-separately. 
Um, I would, if it was me, I would start investing and then try and can, you know, feed him little things along the way to get him excited. Linda likes about lick buybacks. They're okay, I think, if it's below um, the MTA. Uh, ben, in the Facebook community, Kate and I both kind of alluded to that you can just start investing. 40 is not too old. Um, Sarah in the Facebook community said, what if I've invested for the required time? Now what? You know, I want to do my thing. Kate had a financial goal of going to Europe. Uh, we didn't <clears> talk about today, Shem, but we well, often do in the q <laughs> That didn't happen. Um, sometimes things get in the way of goals. And that's okay. Or sometimes they creep up on you quicker. Just prepare for them. The way you accumulate assets, the same thing for unwinding some of those um, assets. And finally, Kate brought to the table a great um, calculator. It's particularly good if you're just starting out. How do you put money in? When do you put money in? And um, you know how much should you buy at one at one go? So um, there's so much to go on. Kate, I just want to give one thing, uh, one special call out on this episode. I know it's going live shortly after we record this. If you haven't enrolled in a RASC course and you want to, I would strongly encourage you to do that soon because some of our courses are changing. Some of the courses are going from free to paid. Um, We are rolling out new courses, new free courses, um, and also new paid courses on the RASC Education website. But I would highly encourage you, if you want to be in our popular courses, to jump on there now, like as in today, because um, in the next couple of days, they're changing to paid courses. We've got nearly 15,000 students enrolled, Kate, which is just unbelievable. It's just totally awesome. And when I announced this via the mailing list last week, you you told me that everyone basically went to the education site and put every course in their cart and then they checked did. out of their yes. cart. Yeah. And the, the, the simple thing is if you enroll now and it's free, it's going to stay free for as long as you have the enrollment. So just do it. Um, you know, we're cutting off our nose to spite our face a bit here because I'm telling you to enroll now before they become paid. Now, that said, we will also be rolling out um, free courses in the next probably month or two. Um, a lot of great new courses. Kate and I are actually recording this week. Got to get my voice in check. Yes. Hopefully <laughs> Owen's recovered by then, um, or you might have some really uh, interesting sounding videos your way. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> COVID-esque uh, videos and audio from now on. No. So, yeah, seriously, head to Rask Education. It's just you know, you can just Google RASC education and it will come up. Just add all the courses to your cart and start start on them. It costs you nothing, um, but only for a bit longer. So, cool. Kate, this is always fun. Thanks for doing a Q&A with me. It's, um, it's great. So thank you. We'll be a bit more rehearsed next time, but uh, thanks everyone for tuning into our first Q&A for the year. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rask.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.